Hello and welcome to the Danielle Newnan podcast, where I interview tech founders and innovators to learn the inspiring human stories behind the game-changing tech we use every day. Today's guest is Michael Gibson, co-founder of 1517, a venture fund he started in 2015 with Danielle Strachman, which backs, and I quote, dropouts, renegade students, and deep tech scientists at the earliest stages. Prior to starting 1517, Michael worked with Peter Till, and alongside his current co-founder, Danielle Strachman, they ran the Till Fellowship for five years. For those of you who don't know what the Till Fellowship is, it was set up by Peter Till to fund students who were 22 or under, giving them a total of $100,000 over two years so that they could drop out of the traditional education system and pursue important work. The fellowship guided them through this process, which would often involve scientific research, creating a startup or working on a social movement. Past founders backed by the fellowship include Vitalik Buterin, who was still a teenager when the fellowship allowed him to drop out and work on Ethereum, as well as Laura Deming, the founder of the Longevity Fund, and Idris Sandu, co-founder of Spatial Labs. Michael is also the author of Paper Belt on Fire, How Renegade Investors Sparked a Revolt Against the University, which I absolutely loved. It's a book about startups, creating a fund with Peter Thiel, founders reimagining education to empower the young to create great companies without the limitation of credentials. And it's also the story of identity, specifically Michael's own challenging path to finding out who he is after his father, a suspected CIA agent, was found murdered when Michael was still a toddler. Honestly, I can't tell you how good this book is, but trust me, it is well worth your time, as is this episode. So please enjoy my conversation with Michael Gibson. Michael, thank you so much for joining me today. With all my interviews, I like to go back in time. And I wanted to ask you, what were you like growing up? And what were some childhood experiences which shaped you? I think I was a a nice young man. Um, you know, I, I I think I had fun on the playground and hanging out with friends, but I was also quiet at times. I also felt as though I didn't fit in. Um, you know, I some of this came into focus for me, or, or you know, really did when I was about you know twenty years old. My mom told me or confirmed my suspicions that. Um, you know, I wasn't fully related to my siblings. So I, you know, I grew up thinking, you know, one person was my dad. And then, you know, when I was 20, I discovered someone else was my biological father. And that man, um, you know, had passed away when I was about 18 months old. Um, So, you know, it's like, even though I had, I didn't have a dramatic, you know, storm and stress adolescence. But as soon as I learned that it really, you know, flipped my world. Um, and, and made me wonder who I am. You know, I have this name Gibson, but my biological father's name is Smith. And that was a mystery that, uh, is still with me, but in my, in growing up and maturing, I wanted to know, you know, who my dad was. My mom, uh, believes he was murdered. I mean, it's this crazy story where my mom was talking to my, my dad three days before he died and he he thought his life was in danger so this guy I, he he was an engineer for NBC the television network in the US and uh that was his day job so he did things like um film Saturday night live at Rockefeller Center that kind of stuff but then one day he just surprised my mom saying that he was involved with some intelligence work that is he feared his life was in danger and then 3 days later um 
he was found dead in his apartment. So um, very mysterious, uh, you know, circumstances. And uh, that certainly flipped my world, as I said. I didn't want, I don't want to make it sound like I was angry or angsty, but it certainly uh, cast this, it put me in a position where I was an insider and an outsider. It's like I was part of my family, but I wasn't. And then I also saw that, you know, appearances can be deceiving and it made me question the nature of my reality. I can imagine. I mean, when I read the book, I don't know what I was expecting to start with, but it wasn't it wasn't that story. And I've said to you before we start recording, the book is utterly brilliant. And you managed to to tell a wonderful story in your book about your life journey, career journey, and you weave that story in, which is remarkable in itself. Um, mm-hmm. Obviously, things change for you when, like you said, when you're 19, 20 and you found this out. You, I understand, were studying philosophy and then dropped out, which is a theme, Mm -hmm. I think, in your story, before becoming a journalist. I want to ask you, how did Peter Thiel fit into all of this? How did you meet him? Well, through a series of unlikely events and uh, I suppose a little bit of luck. um, Yeah, when you're 18 or 19, you're you're very impressionable. And when you dream, maybe you, you look to role models. For me at that time, I loved the poet T.S. Eliot. I saw on the back of his books that he had studied for a PhD in philosophy at Harvard. Um, Another writer I admired was uh, Tom Wolfe, the the journalist, novelist. And I saw on the back of his book that he (laughs) had obtained a PhD in American studies from Yale. And so when I was, uh, yeah, 1920, I thought, wow, you know, if if I'm going to write you know, at that level of quality, maybe I need a PhD. So that that set me down that path. And, and I forget how many years it was, you know, uh, probably five, um, I guess six. I in grad school, um, you know, I, I studied ancient languages, Latin and ancient Greek uh, and, and philosophy. And then I, I was in the basement of a bookstore in Oxford and I picked up um, a collection Tom Wolfe had put together called The New Journalism. So that was the term to describe these writers in the 1960s, these nonfiction writers who decided they wanted to pillage the tools and techniques of novelists and and short story writers and then use those to tell uh, true stories. Um, And and I was just enamored by it. And I I remember being in that basement thinking, why? I don't need a PhD to write. What am I out of my mind? I didn't like teaching. I loved researching and writing, but you know, I didn't want to make a career out of out of teaching. So um, that was one of those moments where I decided it was time to leave. And um, I, I had accumulated a little bit of experience as a journalist and working for newspapers and magazines. And so I, I got lucky enough to get a job at uh, my first job was uh, as a you know editorial assistant, basically, at MIT's magazine called Technology Review. And so I just started. It was a baptism by fire into uh, reporting science and technology. Now, one of the stories in the course of my uh, writing career, writing for MIT was, uh, I was assigned a story on PayPal and specifically their CTO, Max Levchin. Um, And and it was a retrospective article because PayPal had been sold to eBay and, and Max Levchin had won this award. So it was in talking to Max in 2000, I guess it was 2007, where I heard this term, the PayPal mafia, I guess, for the first time. I had no, I, I knew what PayPal was, but I didn't know the people behind it. 
And it's, I mean, it's, these people are all famous now, but back then not as much. And so, um, you know, Max Levchin says this thing to me that just threw me off. I was like, is there anything you'd tell your younger self to do differently? Um, having sold the company for, I, I forget, 1.5 billion to eBay. I don't know what his cut was, but surely something substantial. Mm -hmm. And then uh, Max tells me, yeah, I took a year off, traveled the world um, and lived on a beach. And it was the worst year of my life. And that just shocked <laughs> me. I'm like, who is this guy? Um, and then he, I said, well, what, what do you mean? And he says, well, you know, I was just consuming things. I could have been productive. I have these friends. They were all starting companies. And then I said, well, who are your friends? And then it was like this list of the who's who of the dot-com gold rush. It was like, uh, you know, Elon Musk, this guy who started a rocket ship company, an electric car company, Reed Hoffman, LinkedIn, Jeremy Stoppelman, Yelp, Steve Chen, YouTube. It was like in a short span of time, these former PayPal alumni had gone on to create the next generation of tech and it just blew my mind. And then he mentioned Peter Thiel. Yeah, I didn't know who he was, but, you know, here was this vaguely intellectual libertarian finance guy. And, uh, and so that's the first time I heard Peter's name. I reached out and received no response to his hedge fund at that time, but like a little bit of time passed. And I, I went to a, a festival in in Silicon Valley a, a year or so later. And then I met a couple of people who worked for Peter and they said that there was this job opening. And so just telling them about my interests or so on, they said, Oh yeah, send in, you know, your resume and whatever. So then before I knew it, I was in an interview with Peter and we just got along. I mean, we talked philosophy and, and economics for about an hour. And at the end of it, Peter just out of nowhere was like, Hey, do you want to help me teach this class at Stanford law school? Um, this winter on philosophy and technology. And I was just like, okay, sure. And he's like, we'll get you set up at the hedge fund and as an analyst. So that, you know, that story is crazy in the sense mm -hmm. of like, so I, I go to a lot of university campuses. Some people ask me, Oh, how do you get a job in, in Silicon Valley? Like, and if I tell my own story, it's just like swinging behind the vine. It doesn't, you know, in retrospect, you can see the connections, but it's like not replicable. So <laughs> pretty <laughs> unlikely series of events. Well, what's amazing is that, so he did hire you and it was to help teach the class and to be an analyst, mm. but it was pretty soon after that you started to get involved in the Teal Fellowship. How quickly did that happen? And what was the premise? Yeah, it was my first day of work. I can tell you the day because it was my first day, September 27th, 2010. So I was hired for one purpose and then I show up to work the first day and I'm immediately swept up into this adventure that became the Teal Fellowship. You know, one of my colleagues, I, I get, you know, I, I show up at reception. They bring me back to my desk. It's, I have, and, and it's on this, you know, hedge fund trading floor, everything you imagine, stock ticker on the screen. As soon as I sit down, I'm thinking, what am I doing here? And then uh, my co a colleague comes to my desk. He says, hey, we got to go to Peter's house. We came up with this idea in the plane ride back from New York last night to San Francisco. Uh, we're calling it the Anti-Roads Scholarship, and we got to announce it today at this conference. So I was like, oh, wow, interesting. All right, so we walked to Peter's house. I love the idea of the Anti-Roads Scholarship. Uh, I mentioned, yeah, you mentioned I was at Oxford, and um, I, I always thought that the, the especially the American Road Scholars tend to be very insufferable credentialists, you know, eager. You know, they're looking for their place in the highest levels of the nomenclatura of, of American civic life. 
And, um, and so I was against it, you know, against the roads and, and here we are doing the anti-roads scholarship. I was like, all right, I'm in this, but yeah, that was my first day of work. We go to this conference, Peter, Jim O'Neill and I are in the car. We're just throwing out, what do we call this thing? How much money are we going to give away as a grant? And then backstage. And then before I know it, Peter's on stage being interviewed and he announces the Teal Fellowship. Uh, and he's talking in the present tense, like we have a program. It's, <laughs> you know, he's like, we're taking applications. And I just remember, oh God, it was so, it was like so much in one day when I talked to my parents that night, I was like, holy cow, this is my first day. I wonder what tomorrow's going to be like. But yeah, that was the start of the program. So I was there at the founding moment and helped manage that program. And over time, um, it was down to me and another person and, and Danielle Strachman, my my current co-founder and colleague, you know, ran that program for five years. So really out of the blue, you know, turn, but uh, again, an extraordinary opportunity just because of, you know, Peter's creativity. I mean, how many, I can't think of many managers in corporate America who on the fly would launch a program like that. And especially one that's so radical and contrarian, but uh, it was a lot of fun. How long do you think he'd been thinking about it? Because I know he'd obviously had his ideas, which he'd shared with the world about education. But to go mm. from, like you said, a flight on the on the night before to presenting it at TechCrunch, how much thought had he given it? Or was it literally, I mean, I know he'd given the idea, mm. the concept thought, but like you said, it's quite radical to go from let's <laughs> yeah. do this to, okay, let's well, announce I, Yeah, it I shouldn't world. say, right. It's not totally out of the blue. Peter has certainly been an antagonist of higher education for 35 years. So he he went to Stanford in the 80s law school there in the late 80s early 90s. And and in that time he founded the Stanford Review that you know certainly offered its criticisms of higher education. He wrote a book called The Diversity Myth in the 90s about some of the issues surrounding identity politics and curriculum. So he 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 certainly thought a lot about higher ed and then once he had made substantial amount of wealth by, you know, 2008, he had thought about starting a new university and had, you know, his team research what that would take. And, and after all that research had been compiled, they decided it was just too risky and too difficult. Um, one of the things about higher education is the prestige and exclusivity and to bootstrap that from nothing is very difficult. Um, and then there are also just the the regulatory thickets, the accreditation, all of that. After all that is said and done, you end up having to look like every other university out there. Um, so he had given up on that. So that, that's certainly, you know, a deep background to this. And then I think also it was his experience working with Mark Zuckerberg. So famously, Peter is, you know, the first outside investor in Facebook. When Zuckerberg pitched Peter, he was, I, I believe, 20 years old. And um, and then there were people at PayPal, too, who who hadn't finished school at the University of Illinois and so on. So I think all that had coalesced in Peter's mind um, to say, oh, what could we do differently? And so maybe when they got talking on the plane from New York, um, you know, maybe that was all in the air. And the thought was, well, what could we do differently? There was some urgency, I, I think, also. So I said September 27th. That was a Monday. Um, on Friday that week, the movie, The Social Network, was set to come out. And Aaron Sorkin's script had been leaked. It was clear that Peter was portrayed negatively as some sort of Gordon Gecko character. And, and also, primarily, that Zuckerberg was 
being portrayed negatively, at least in the script. Um, so I, I, I also think there was this idea that, hey, if we get this out in the world first, um, you know, it'll be more interesting and newsworthy than than some movie that depicts, you know, that that again is just fiction and not reality. Um, so, so I think that was all in the background that week. Um, so it wasn't like, Hey, I just had this, you know, napkin cocktail napkin idea. I think there was a lot of thinking about higher ed. What is the creative moment to me though, is to say, yeah, we're going to pay a hundred thousand dollars to people. They got to be 19 and under and they can't be enrolled in school. (laughs) That is a real, you know, left turn in this debate about higher education. I actually remember when it was announced and I remember obviously the press had a field day with what yep. they wanted to say about it. But actually, I managed to find, I was looking on Reddit. I don't know why I started looking for this. But anyway, I, I found Vitalik's, Vitalik Buterin was obviously one of the, I th- was he one of the first fellows? Was he in the first year? Or, uh, or not in the first year. Uh, uh, in 2013, we brought okay. him into the program. So I suppose yeah. that's the third year. Yeah. Oh, okay. So it got announced. So he was not so unknown, but relatively unknown. This was like 2013, 2014. And he put it yep. up on Reddit. that it, Oh, no, someone else had put up the announcement that he was awarded mm. a fellowship. And all of the people who had obviously engaged with him on Reddit over the years were also like, congratulations. Oh, I wish we had a Peter <laughs> Till in my country. And this was in India. And there was just all these people praising the whole idea of this fellowship. And I thought, well, that sums up the world, right? All the press, all the people like the journalists who most likely had their little formal education are very anti it. And everyone else who, who's got a great idea is probably for it. But I think this is also a good time to say your book, which I praise a lot, is called Paper Belt on Fire. What does that mean for those that don't know? Obviously, I've read the book, so I know. But yeah. for those that don't, what is it? Yeah, you might not think it's this uh, adventure story about <laughs> two <laughs> unlikely people in finance, you know, giving money to younger people to leave school. Um, so the paper belt uh, is a term that uh, me and a buddy were just jamming on. And, and we thought, yeah, the Rust Belt came to define this region in, in the Midwest of America, you know, Ohio, Indiana, Michigan, where these old industries had been hollowed out by technological change and, and, and globalization. And so we were forecasting that in the next, you know, decade or two, that the the paper belt was going to start to resemble the rust belt. And by paper belt, we meant the region from Washington, D.C., all the way to Boston, just because symbolically everything there was done on paper. So in in Washington, D.C., they print laws and money on paper, uh, passports. In Delaware, people incorporate on paper. In New York, media, New York Times, Wall Street Journal, Madison Avenue, advertising, all paper. And then as the as the crowning symbol of American higher education in in Boston, Harvard, and MIT print diplomas on paper. Now, what's interesting about, and I get into this probably at too great length in the book, what I find so interesting about paper-based systems is that they rely on third parties to verify or authenticate that the paper is real and represents something. So it's like a diploma a university issues a diploma on paper, theoretically, that diploma has been authenticated by the school as signaling something important about the person. And so one of the ways that I think our institutions have been corrupted is that insiders have weakened that signal, either through fraud or just through laziness or just through decadence. 
And it, that is even true of money. The U.S. dollar and the you know the Federal Reserve prints dollars, and it is the Federal Reserve that authenticates them as real. But do they? We have to question nowadays. You know, do, how much do they retain the value that they used to have? And the same can be said of diplomas as well. And so I, I wanted to develop that theme in the book. This idea that we we trust these third parties to authenticate things, and now either whether it's just bad performance or uh, collusion, uh, they're not living up to their stated purposes anymore. So the book is 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 a lot about higher education and the diploma and how it's not what it used to be, or maybe it never was. Um, but it also touches on some of these other thematic and, you know, as that theme relates to other institutions as well. Absolutely. And when you're talking about your buddy, is this the person you describe as an Indian Stanley Tucci? <laughs> yes. I thought that uh, was the... So, yeah, so some of your listeners may know him, Balaji Srinivasan. He's well, they a... won't know him as the Indian Stanley Tucci, I can tell you that. <laughs> I um, he's he's famous on uh, Twitter. He's very provocative thinker um, and, and one of the fastest minds I've ever encountered. Um, just brilliant, brilliant guy. Um, his background is in, in tech and in biotech. He's had success with companies like Council, but then more recently with uh, 21 and Coinbase. Uh, he's an investor. So, and, and then maybe he, he gained a lot of prominence because he was one of the early warning alarms when when news out of China came in, in December and January of 2020 that COVID was was out and, and loose. And so he, he he became a renegade tweeter on that. Do you uh, remember so, yeah. the, the reaction, though, when he started doing that? Do you remember? Because I remember the didn't they have a sign up at Andreessen Horowitz saying basically don't don't shake our hands when you come in yes like, yes and then yeah. the newspaper or I forget and then Cara Swisher and everyone was like oh yes. you know and um, well they all ate their words afterwards didn't they yes here are these xenophobic tech bros who yeah. won't shake hands <laughs> yes. it's of stories later and they're oh okay we were wrong about that but anyway um so when you were looking for these fantastic young fellows for the teal fellowship mm -hmm. i know that obviously vitalik butelin who we've mentioned in ethereum he mm -hmm. came along and i know actually one of the great things in the book is that you kind of tell the backstories of, of these people and laura deming i knew of but I didn't know fully her story or that she mm -hmm. was at like university at 17 years old at MIT, I think, and obviously yep. an incredible founder. And then there's Austin Russell. And I just wondered if you could tell me kind of, I know you, you couldn't, you weren't looking for a specific thing, but what was it mm -hmm. about those three as an example that fitted the bill? Yeah. Yeah. Maybe this is like too pompous, but, <laughs> but I, I think of the book as like, I, I wanted it to be a meditation on, on creativity and, and especially as told through a first person perspective, you know, how do we find it? How do we judge it? Where does it come from? When I looked in the psychology literature on creativity, it's just so freaking lame. Um, geez, these psychologists will put people in a room and give them a brick and then tell them, you know, come up with as many ideas as you can for what this brick could be. And then they, you know, based on the number of answers people give, they'll try to correlate that with something else. And it's like, oh, here's creativity. No, wrong. Like creativity is just so much more dynamic and it's so hard to like, we don't really know, you know, from the academic level on down where it comes from, how to uh, cultivate it. And then really uh, in, 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 in my job is like how to identify it. Um, so I wanted to, you know, and that, that's why I tell my personal story. Uh, you know, Peter has this uh, heuristic he developed 
and when he's investing and thinking about hires um, that derives from this is the work of all places, the work of a French literary theorist, anthropologist, Rene Girard. Um, and one of the things Girard noticed was that in world mythologies um, and stories about heroes and kings and so on, he, he his research focus was on uh, mob mentality, witch hunts, scapegoating. And he was curious in these stories, like how does the crowd choose who to pick as the scapegoat? And one of the things Girard pointed out is that you know, the, 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 the scapegoat is often an insider and an outsider. In the words of uh, David Byrne from The Talking Heads, um, you know, strange but not a stranger. And what does that mean? It means that, well, okay, in the case of, of when, when, when the crowd is hunting the scapegoat, there's a social crisis at hand. And so the scapegoat can't be someone who's so foreign that they couldn't possibly have caused the crisis. And on the other hand, they can't be so much an insider that they're part of the king's court because that person would never be blamed. So they often pick someone who's on the margin, on the boundary, the borderlands, someone who fits in but doesn't fit in. In some cases, this is, could be an immigrant. In other cases, it could be um, someone who's like part of the group but not part of the group. Um, so Peter saw that, and what Gerard pointed out was like oftentimes these people do become heroes or uh, in, in mythologies or in... Uh, in stories. And so Peter actually uses that as one of his elements that he looks for in creative founders and in hires. And so in telling my story, I wanted to explain how I saw myself as an insider or outsider. Um, but, you know, that's something I look for in people and in, in what we were looking for in Teal Fellows um, to some extent. And, and, and maybe just by virtue of being like Laura Deming, when she 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 applied to work at a laboratory when she was twelve to study uh, how worms age and maybe how their genes could be could be switched on and off to extend their lifespan, and then made her way to MIT by sixteen. So it's like you know she's she's an insider in the sense of she's met all the requirements of academic rigor, but she's an outsider in the sense of that she was homeschooled, she worked in a lab when she was twelve. I mean, a lot of these people fit this. So in the book, I sort of, I mean, that insider outsider dynamic is one thing I, that that I explore. But there are a list of other things that we came to see that uh, you know, certainly when it comes to starting a tech company and you know a startup of some kind. Um, you know, these are the character traits that we look for. Some of the ones we just had to invent names for because we couldn't find anything in the existing literature. Um, you know, one thing we call Friday Night Dyson Sphere. Um, that's just something uh, when we're talking to to you know young founders that we, we see like a Dyson Sphere. Uh, Freeman Dyson, the physicist, came up with this idea that you know we would be able to harness all the energy of a sun one day, and and maybe that would mean surrounding it completely with solar panels in some fashion. Um, and that 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 device is called the Dyson sphere. So it's like the most ambitious science fiction like idea you could imagine and combining that with, so what is Friday night Dyson sphere? Well, we meet people and they are just jazzed and so excited to tell us about how they're not at the party on Friday night. They're not going out. They're working on their Dyson sphere and maybe it's a lemonade stand today, but by God, they have a plan on how they're going to build, mm -hmm. you know, business out of this lemonade stand. And one day they're, they're going to be making Dyson spheres. Uh, so yeah, I go through a lot of that in the book just because I think, you know, I did a lot of people, I guess in other uh, books, they certainly, 
investors will talk about what they look for, but, but I think character is just so important. And so I, I try to develop some of these, uh, some of these ideas. It's really good. And I think like you said, in other books, people will be trying, it's almost like some other books, and this is probably pushed by the publisher, but there's almost like a tick box list of what they need to write so that someone can learn something from it. And I've never understood that because when I was doing my first book, I had a similar thing from the publisher and uh, I ended up, I didn't tell you this before we started recording, actually, when we were talking about publishing, but I got rid of my publisher and self-published because I just, yeah, I just felt people can learn from Mm -hmm. the stories, right? They do not need to be given a hit list of what, you know, oh, this is how you do this and this is how you do that. And I think that's the very interesting thing about your book is in some libraries, it might be under business, which, you know, makes sense, (laughs) but it's not a business book. I think... um... I go back to Aristotle and the principles of of his ethics and drama, which is that character is action, which which means intention and obstacle. That's drama. That's conflict. Um, and character is revealed in how we overcome these obstacles. That's like Aristotle's principle of drama. So if I'm going to write about how character is important to creativity, I thought it'd be best to do it in the form of a story. Do you think, I just wonder if integrity is, important because when I think about the fellows that invested in but also what you're doing now with the 1517 fund it's a unique set of people in the sense I would say that they've got a good moral compass whereas some people would finance somebody who's very cutthroat very interested in making a lot of money that's not what you guys are about so are you able to even decipher at the early stages with the the young people that you've invested in what their moral compass is like we certainly want to get a sense of it um, when we started the fellowship, we were too imitative of colleges. We had an application. It asked for things like grade point average and test scores um, in, in what school people went to. And what we quickly discovered was that in the event, these things were not strong predictors about how well someone would do out in the wild uh, trying to build something new. Um, some, some things could even be negative signals. You know, it was like, we found that people who won this one science prize tended to be too brittle out in the real world. Um, so I, I, and, but the main thing about applications that I hated was that they're just a snapshot, uh, you know, and someone's trying to express who they are and what they're doing in, in a slice of time and character is revealed over time. So we, I, we quick, I, I, I came to hate applications. I said they were like fruit. They start off fresh and, and rot quickly. Uh, and that's because people just do things over time. It could be a month later and someone comes back to you and they, they, they made a pivot or something. And now they're onto something new and exciting. Um, but really it came down to also this, this point you just made, which is that we want to know, you know, what motivates people? What's their level of commitment? Why are they doing what they're doing? And again, I think that's best revealed through time. Uh, so and, and I never want to be in a shark tank situation where I'm hearing a pitch from someone I've never met before. I have no idea who they are. And they're telling me about this business um, because I can't possibly assess in one meeting, you know, someone's uh, motivations or, you know, their integrity. But if I've known them over time, if, if I've worked with them in some fashion, if I've seen them at hackathons, if you know, we give out these 1K grants to people to just like build projects and do fun stuff. Um, you know, oftentimes the people we back are people I've known for probably at least, you know, a few months and then maybe even a year or more. And, and so, I, you know, I, it's only recently that I met a sports scout 
but it but it dawned on me early enough that that what we were doing was quite similar to maybe the way uh you know football uh scouts and coaches are always looking to develop you know teenage talent and track it over time and get some sense of who these people are it's amazing to me how many mistakes the professionals make though you know you could think in the, in the US with the NBA the NFL you know so many people are drafted and don't work out or or so many people are drafted in a low uh round but the, you know Tom Brady famously the quarterback so i think the same is true of uh of of endeavors um and and so we try to get to know people over time we we do want to know their motivation you know what's sustaining them to to build a company because it's going to be miserable. You're going to eat glass. It's not going to be great. There are going to be highs. There are going to be moments of of ecstasy and joy, but boy oh boy, are there lots of dark nights of the soul. And so we have to know that there's something to sustain people through that time over over the years. In and in my experience, it can't be money. It can't be power. It can't be fame. It's got to be something deeper, like you know, some kind of purpose. Um, you know, one, one way that I've seen it work out is, is if it's just a bunch of friends who love working together, I mean, that doesn't have to be very, I mean, maybe that's profound, but it's like, you know, it's not like trying to end climate change or, you know, something like that, some kind of purpose, but there does have to be something that that's below that really, uh, motivates people to push through the years. And I, and I don't want that to be confused either with, um, the way entrepreneurship is is commonly portrayed, which is as this risk taking, you know, almost like a extreme sport like skydiving or, you know, cliff climbing or whatever, um, you know, uh, there is a lot of risk involved. But what I think the big difference is is that with a startup, you have to do it day in and day out, year after year. Whereas like skydiving might only be one leap out out of a plane just once. Um, so I, I don't like this sort of talk in entrepreneurship where it's like, oh yeah, take that leap of faith, make, make the jump. I mean, that can be part of it and that can be exciting, but you need that sustaining motivation, uh, and integrity to push through. Undoubtedly, there are these examples like Elizabeth Holmes or Adam Newman, where they, I think they fooled early investors because they were able to mimic a lot of the tropes of entrepreneurship, um, but you know, in time, they certainly, they certainly grew rotten. And in each case, I mean, I don't want to bog down the conversation getting into like where the mistakes were made, but, um, but, but yeah, maybe there's something to be said where investors think they're looking for some trait and then imitators figure out how to mimic that trait and, and fool people. Yeah. Other VCs that I've spoken to, like they will admit that historically there was a type of person that they were looking for. Mm. And I've interviewed enough founders now to know that some of them didn't fall into that type and found it much harder to get investment. So, but I'm glad it's changing because I think the landscape now, we went through that kind of hustle culture thing where everyone worked really mm -hmm. hard and wanted a billion dollar company. And now yes. there's enough documentaries on Netflix to show us that maybe that's not the right way to go. But before we move off from the Teal Fellowship, there's one thing I was always curious about. I've seen mm. Peter do a talk when he came to London many years ago when he did Zero to One. And how I perceive him versus how some of the press that we discussed earlier perceive him is very different. So as someone who's worked with him, what would you say is something that people get wrong about him? I think people see him as a rational Vulcan, incapable of feeling things. And that is so far from the truth. Um, he's a very intuitive thinker. He's very funny. I mean, this comes out in some interviews that are done with him. 
but he has these like one-liners he'll just come up with that are really funny. I, sometimes they're stated as like oracular aphorisms and people wonder what they mean. If I think of like a famous one in the last few years, I forget where he said it, but he said something like AI is communist and blockchain is libertarian. <laughs> you know, it's like people are always like, oh, what does that mean? And, and they'll debate it. Um, but yeah, he comes up with these one-liners and conversations that I think are just so funny. His theories about the world are really models about how people feel about things. So I mentioned Rene Girard. Girard has this theory about you know why humans desire the things they do. And Girard believes, well, we just imitate other people because you know we are instinctually rivalrous with them. And in that rivalry, we come to imitate them. Like, you know, these sorts of theories are about the human heart. So it's weird to me when the press just portrays him as this unfeeling Gordon Gecko Vulcan. It just doesn't make sense. Well, what's interesting is that's the narrative that they've decided upon and everything has to fit into that narrative. So it's like he can never break free. But I think obviously in this day and age where you can have a public profile and do interviews and do podcasts, mm-hmm. I feel like it would be good for him to do that because then obviously more people would understand him better, but he's doing very well without the help. Of and and maybe the last him. thing actually is that he is a devout Christian <laughs> and that yeah, case, I mean, yeah. that, that's a surprise to people in Silicon Valley because mm. on the philanthropic side, he's certainly donated to, you know, these Bay area rationalists, these people concerned with artificial, you know, the existential risk from artificial intelligence and so on. And a lot of those people are in fact, <laughs> secular atheist Vulcans. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think it did come as a surprise. He's not very public about his, his faith, but you know, it's, it is out there. And, mm-hmm. um, and so it was always a, a bit of a surprise to people when they found that Peter believes in God. Well, this is something that you mentioned in the book. And I have to say, besides being something that, you know, founders can learn from and educators can learn from and and business people can learn from, I also thought it was almost one of the best stories about Peter himself, because, you know, there are books out that you and people close to Peter have said are, you know, pretty much rubbish, as in a lot of it's not true. But you obviously give a firsthand account of working with him and more Mm. about him, which I thought was fascinating. But let's go on. So after about five years of working at the Teal Fellowship, you and Danielle Strachman uh, decided to co-found 1517. And it's it's on a similar path from what you were doing. What does the 1517 stand for, for people that don't know? So that's our geeky reference to the Protestant Reformation. We are not a religious uh, firm, you know, even just talking about Peter's belief. Um, but what stood out for us was a historical parallel. We had come to see universities as being quite similar to the uh, corruptions of the church of the 16th century, in particular, the way the church was selling a piece of paper called an indulgence. And, you know, anyone who wanted to fork over money for this piece of paper, would uh, their souls would be saved or, you know, their sins absolved. So we saw this historical parallel. The other thing was that, you know, 1517 is the year Martin Luther purportedly uh nailed his 95 theses to the church door and what he, you know, his 95 theses were complaining about were were the sale of this piece of paper. Um, Luther's uh, theses were, I want to say the first sort of trolling listicle that went viral. And that was made possible by the printing press. Um, It had been invented, uh, you know, some 60 years or so before that. But it really came into its own in Europe. And I think the Reformation was only possible because now 
you know, Bibles could be printed in the vernacular cheaper and so on. So there was this decentralizing aspect to the Reformation too that 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 drew us on. And I noticed we tested the idea. I, if I just wore the number 1517, people would ask me what it meant. And so that that that's what that keyed me off on, okay, that gives us a chance to state our mission and and really get our name out there. There's something in the book. Another thing, this is why I love storytelling is is I think names, the theme of naming is important in the book. You know, whether it's my own name and my own family, why do I have the last name Gibson or why do we call this 1517? And, and I, you know, I don't, I don't, it's, it, I think you can do more in storytelling than you can do in like objective description. And so I wanted to provide the sense that by naming things and giving them true names, they almost become, you know, these ideals and norms that we can, normative statements that we can live up to. Um, so naming it 1517 was very powerful for us, really motivated us to to see our mission clearly. Um, and yeah, we started in 2015. You know, another part of the book is is that I noticed there just weren't any behind the scenes accounts of working in venture capital. There was a book written in the early 2000s called E-Boys about this fund that invested in eBay. Uh, Tom Perkins has a memoir, Valley Boy, that's, you know, more gossipy than than business. Um, but and maybe Sebastian Malaby, the journalist, recently put out a book called mm -hmm. The Power Law, which yeah. you know is, a, is each chapter is a profile of famous investors. And but there's not much out there, uh, especially from that first person perspective. So when Danielle and I launched 1517, uh, yeah, I, I thought it'd be great to take people behind the scenes to show them, you know, what does it take to launch a fund? You know, Peter is one of our is and was one of our investors, but we had, you know, 30 others in that first fund. So how do you go about raising money? How do you pitch them? What what do you do? I wanted to tell that whole story in all its sights and sounds and colors because it can be a little freewheeling. It's so good. And like we talked about before we started recording, I definitely think it should be made into a series because even like every element, like every chapter, I was like, oh, this is just so good. And in the, when you were talking about the initial fundraising for 1517, mm -hmm. I think it was the initial one, the first one, yeah. first round. And and Ari, I wouldn't even say what happens, but the email that you sent to Ari Emmanuel, I was yeah. just like, oh, that's just bloody brilliant. But I'm not going to say anything <laughs> about it because people have to read it. To, to okay, yeah, that is, that is in the second fund, not the oh, first second fund. one. But, oh, but uh, so yeah, good. through that, it's like, okay, so I wanted, to, again, with storytelling, what can you do? You can show uh, transformation of character, a character arc. And in myself and Danielle, it's like we go from, you know, Danielle was a school principal, founded a charter school in San Diego. I, you, Everyone here is heard my backstory earlier in the interview. It's like, we have no background in business. So we go from, I, I was someone who couldn't negotiate a salary to suddenly I'm, you know, barking at the most powerful agent in Hollywood. But it worked. <laughs> and the other thing that we should say is, because I saw Danielle tweeted last year when you raised Fund 3, and she mm. said, a teacher, a philosopher, and two dropouts just raised <laughs> 80 million. I was like, oh, that's brilliant. But that's this is what yeah. I was saying earlier about dropout being a theme, because it's so much part of the story. And I think the more people that can hear your story, reading the book will help. Right. Um, some quick fire ones, because I know we're running out okay. of time. Uh, well, let's see how quick you answer them, as in it's up to you how long the answer is. But you've talked many times about the great stagnation. And I just wondered, mm -hmm. how do we foster great ideas and accelerate progress? Yeah. So the great stagnation, I think we're not making as 
as much progress as compared to the past. The rate of progress has slowed down. It's not zero. There are inventions and sector by sector is different. I think everyone's just like bedazzled by the smartphone and the internet that they think the world is progressing elsewhere. But when you look at education, healthcare, energy, all these things, you know, we, we're just not making the same progress that we've slowed down. So the question is, how do we turn this around? How do we spark a new renaissance? What I just see, and maybe I'm beating a drum, is that we don't trust young people to do things. Um, scientists have to you know, work, get an undergraduate degree, spend six, seven years to get the PhD, some postdocs, and then maybe eventually by the time they're in their mid to late thirties, they get a funding to run some experiments. But by that time they've, you know, kissed the ring so many times that their imagination is lost. So I think we just need to trust younger people that they're capable of doing things. You know, even if they're college grads, I just wish there was more funding, different kinds of funding available for um, scientists, creators, poets, artists, whatever, that is just unaffiliated with this credentialism. I just think that's a great sign of distrust. In some ways, I think we're in the developing world where corruption and trust are just, you know, trust is scarce and corruption is rampant. So, uh, you know, it's, it's only the few who receive grant money. Yeah, but that's actually something people are working on. Like Patrick Hollison, didn't he launch, I think it started during COVID, and I think he was working on funding people that work. It. I, I can't remember what the fund's called, but I definitely think he's doing that. Some other questions. What are you optimistic about? I'm optimistic in the power of friends and teams to get together to solve these problems. I think it's extraordinary. You know, the one thing that has changed over time is that fewer and fewer people are capable of doing much, much more. And so I hope the people I met over the last 10, 12 years, and then I talk about in the book, I hope they serve as an inspiration because I think, you know, incredible things are possible if, if we just have the courage to undertake them. How would you reimagine education? Because when we talk about progress and encouraging people to take giant leaps and getting better funding, one thing that's obviously overly funded and underperforming is education. If you were mm. to reimagine it, what would it look like? Yeah, the last third of the book, I wanted to do a sweeping canvas of all the unsolved problems across a few different fields. I mean, some of them I mentioned, energy creation, could be freshwater creation, it could be transportation. What I realized is that um, we have all these unsolved problems out there. And, and I, it's not in the book, but God, you could go through uh, various disciplines in the academy, physics, chemistry, molecular biology. And there are, you know, the con you could find the consensus top five unsolved problems. So the number one thing I would do in education would be, uh, I think on you know, almost on the front of every department or every building on a campus, they should list the top five unsolved problems so that anyone walking in that door, you know, if they're 18 or if they're uh, 30, or if they're the Nobel Prize winning professor, they all know that there's still work to be done and that anyone is capable of doing it. All you have to do is solve one of these problems and you'll get your, <laughs> you'll earn your Nobel Prize. Whereas I think education right now is really just, you know, certainly K through 12 in the United States to university. It's really just this colossal assembly line for some vague pre-professional degree um, if you do want to become a scientist, the idea of greatness is just understood as, well, maybe I'll go to Harvard and uh, get a PhD at Caltech and then I'll get tenure. No one ever says, hey, I'm working on this problem. 
one of the stories that stands out to me is Andrew Wiles, the the man who uh, solved uh, Fermat's last theorem. He had to he worked on that problem in hiding for for a decade because it would just be too bold for him to tell anyone that he was working on this hard problem. No one knew he was working on it. I wish we could reverse that in education. So it was clear that, you know, even the best minds of today have not solved these problems. So there's humility there. And then the democratic aspect that anyone can come from anywhere to solve one of these problems and really change the world. That would be wonderful. One of the questions I have, which I won't go into now, because it probably requires another interview, but it was about how we vilify, I guess, following on from talking about Peter Thiel, about why mm. and how people vilify those that are capable of great yeah. things. But anyway, okay, two more questions. So one is, yep. um, I love this line in the book where it says, it is worthwhile, I have found, even when light is absent, to face in the direction it might emanate from. What did you mean by that? I was trying to characterize this uncanny thing in my life where sometimes I was lost in the sense of it wasn't clear that I had a uh, career trajectory, but I just followed my instinct to remain passionate about philosophy and poetry and, and, and freedom. And I found that, you know, even when that seemed like there was no clear, mature career direction, it did take me to the right places. Um, and so that was sort of my perhaps flowery way uh, of expressing that, you know, sometimes when you do follow your heart and what matters most to you, um, you know, sometimes it works out. So good. I really loved it. My final question, which I ask everyone is, if you could go back in time, what's one piece of advice you'd offer a younger Michael? Yes, I would say start earlier. When I mentioned studying for the PhD, it was always like, it was always the case that, oh, you know, you'll, you'll study these other people who wrote brilliant books or, or did things. But the emphasis was never, I, I didn't have the courage to believe that I could create those things myself or be a part of something to do that. And so I wish I could tell my younger self to have the courage to step out into the world and be the creator, just not the critic. And now you get the opportunity to say that to others, which is what you do. So thank you, Michael. I love the book. Excellent. Great right. interview. Really loved it. Thanks thank for having you. me. Thank you for listening to my conversation with Michael Gibson and a huge thank you to Michael for taking time out to share his incredible story. As I said at the top of the interview, I highly recommend his book, Paper Belt on Fire, and wanted to share an extract from it. This passage comes from the opening chapter where Michael's father has just told his mother that rather than being an engineer for NBC, he is in fact a spy and he fears for his life. The extract reads... That conversation was mid-afternoon on Thursday, July the 27th, 1978, in New York City. We were all on the corner of 55th Street and Sutton Place, outside my dad's apartment building, which overlooked the East River and Roosevelt Island, near the Queensboro Bridge. Three days later, on Sunday, after my mum reported him missing, two police officers opened the door to his apartment and found him dead on the floor of his home office. There were no signs of forced entry or of violence. No autopsy was performed, but the New York City coroner said he died of heart failure. To this day, my mum believes he was murdered. That, my friends, is how this book starts, so do check it out if you want to read more. And finally, because I don't quite like ending on bad notes, I will share my favourite quote from the book on page 23, where Michael talks about staying positive and looking for brightness. He says, It is worthwhile, I found, 
even when light is absent, to face in the direction it might emanate from.